you just love passages like this? Tell us what it means. Oh, yeah. I love those passages that can bear God, love itself, the creator of everything, to a vengeful, murderous patriarch. We're living into that great history. Love it. A few weeks ago, uh, we talked about that classic record, Satan is Real. Uh, <laughs> do you guys remember this? We were talking about, the, it's the one with the album cover of, uh, of like a tire fire and a 30-foot tall plywood uh, Satan in the back. Um, it was by that band, the Leuven Brothers. In 1962, that same band, the Leuven Brothers, released a song called Great Atomic Power. <laughs> This song, 1962, remind, I will remind you, took all the fears of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the bomb shelters, the paranoia of the Cold War, and paired it, naturally, with up-tempo gospel bluegrass. The result is terrifying. Well, I'll give you a sample at the end of the service, but, uh, but just to give you a little bit of the course, it goes, are you ready for that great atomic power when you rise and meet your Savior in the end? Will you shout or will you cry when the fire rains from on high? Are you ready for that great atomic power? Nice little nursery rhyme. Put you to bed, right? <laughs> This song is an expression of a people who are afraid. A culture of fear. A people who feel they are on the verge of destruction. A people very much like the readers of Matthew's gospel. In the year 70 of the Common Era, the Roman army sieged the city of Jerusalem in an attempt to quell a Jewish rebellion that had taken control of the city four years prior. The siege of Jerusalem ended on August 30th, the year 70, when Roman forces sacked the city and destroyed the temple. It is difficult to overstate the significance of this in Jewish history. Basically, it felt like the end of the world. It was in the wake of that devastation that Matthew's gospel was written. In this passage, Jesus, who had been killed by Roman authorities 37 years or so before, is teaching in that temple. He tells this parable in response to the corrupt powers who run the city and the temple. And when Jesus says that the king sent his troops and burned their city, this sounds to Matthew's audience like someone saying to us, invaders destroyed our towers. Even years later, the wounds of 9-11 have not fully healed in our culture. For Matthew's audience, this violence was fresh. So if we want to understand this parable from Matthew, we have to understand that context. Let's keep that in mind as we roll into the story. Jesus tells the story of a king whose son is getting married. This is not just some little party. This is a huge deal. 
In, our, in this day and age, uh, the ritual of, of uh, the wedding is more of an individual thing. A lot of people even just go off on their own and, and do it alone together. But in that time, this was a community ritual. This is, had a greater significance than just two people coming together. It's a show of allegiance, allegiance to the ruler and his heir. By not coming, the initial invitees are voicing their opposition in a much grander way than I think we could understand. Of course, those people who are invited first take it to the next level. They kill the messengers. <laughs> this doesn't make much sense to us. Most of us, uh, when we get a wedding invitation in the mail, there, nobody dies. <laughs> Most of the time. But we get the idea. This is a story told by people whose leader was killed and whose capital was destroyed. So the bad guys get what is coming to them. First, the chief priests and the religious teachers, here represented as the people who rejected the wedding, right? We get that. Then there's a guy who's not wearing a wedding robe. What is going on there? Uh, Two years ago, I went out surfing one early winter morning. The waves were really big, and it rained that night, and to get to this particular surf spot that I went to, you had to climb down this bluff, which had turned into just a mud slick after the rain, and it was really cold outside. I was wearing a hood and booties and my, the thickest wetsuit I own, and I was sitting watching the horizon for the next massive set of waves to come in. As I sat there, I turned over, and a guy paddled out wearing nothing but trunks. Trunks. This is like wearing a tutu when you go skiing. You just can't, you cannot be out there doing it. Uh, this guy's board was old. The foam was like yellowed, and immediately I knew that something was wrong here. This guy was dangerous. He was not wearing the right clothes. It is a sign that he should not be there. Something similar is going on with this wedding robe. Scholars don't know much about ancient Jewish wedding practices, but it is clear in Matthew that the man did not have on the appropriate attire. And it's not just that he looked funny because he didn't have a robe. There was something about him that seemed unsafe, like he was an unsafe presence. He's like a guy rolling a mysterious suitcase through the lobby of a Vegas casino. This guy is a threat. To the readers of Matthew's gospel, the violence of the king is comforting. They want revenge. They want justice. They want to see the dangerous people killed and thrown out. As the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. Contemporary neuroscientists have identified one source of this tendency. Through imagery tracking brain activity, they show how people develop habits of response in their amygdala, which initiates the fight or flight response. 
Dr. Neil Carson showed that patients with PTSD have increased activity in their amygdala when shown photos with expression of even the slightest hint of fear. They see danger and violence where there may not be any. As psychologist Abraham Maslow famously said, if the only tool you have is a hammer, it is tempting to treat everything as if it were a nail. You know, we have these generalizations within uh, Christian culture. We talk uh, vaguely about how, like, the Old Testament God is, like, mean, <laughs> like, punishing, right? And the New Testament God is supposed to be, like, you know, happy-go-lucky and there for everybody. Um, these generalizations, I find them to be totally not true at all, but that is kind of the way that we tend to, tend to think of things. We think in the Old Testament that the Old Testament is full of violence and vengeance, but think about it for a second. This makes sense. This is a book of a people who endured slavery in Egypt, captivity in Babylonia, and constant attacks by the Philistines, Canaanites, and Seleucids. Similarly, we can understand the violence and fear in this passage from Matthew. But, through the veil of this hurt and pain, we get a glimpse of God's eternal love at work. We get a glimpse of the God we know. The God who seeks hospitality over hostility, as Nouwen said. God's way is to gather, quote, everyone you find. I love that the king sends out that message. Gather everyone you find. That part is one of the few consistencies between Matthew's telling of this parable and Luke's. There's a parallel passage for those of you who don't know in Luke. It is the same character of God described in today's passage from Isaiah. Notice today how those stereotypes are reversed, how the Old Testament passage reveals God's hospitality and love. In Isaiah, we have the story of a God who wipes the tears from all faces, who takes away all disgrace, who invites everyone to the party. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wines, strained clear. In this passage, God is shopping at Whole Foods. God gets the absolute best foods, aged wines, choice cuts of meat, plenty of vegetarian options. This is one of the most enduring images in the Hebrew Bible, a feast for all peoples. A party to which everyone is invited. Young, old, gay, straight, sober, addict, cool, not cool, president, immigrant, dreamer, liberal, conservative, politician, or tired of politics. A feast for all peoples, for the hungry, for the forgotten, the homeless, the houseless, the Mormon, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the Christian, the Jew, the tired, the sick, the healthy, the brilliant, the inspired, the exhausted. A feast for all peoples. Everyone is invited. But if you're invited, you need to look like it. 
You need to be someone who fits in at a feast of all peoples. Someone working for inclusion and healing at all levels, from global poverty to intimate relationships. If we are to dress the part of those invited to the feast of all peoples, we need to train ourselves in hospitality, to train our minds to respond in welcoming and inviting ways as our default setting, to seek hospitality instead of hostility. How do we do that? One way for us is to step out of the hostility of time. Krista Tippett from the show On Being says that for many of us, time is a bully. We feel beaten and trapped by time. It feels like there's never enough time. And there isn't. Unless there is. Unless we feel it, unless we take an extra minute to listen to the person who talks to us, to play with our children, to call our friends, to read that book, to look at the crescent moon in the clear autumn sky. As we go out this week, take that extra minute and listen for the invitation of the one who calls us all to the feast. Amen.